As you know, we're in the middle of a sermon series titled, Our Church, Christ's Home. And we are looking at the characteristics of a healthy, dynamic church that makes it alive and changes lives. Today, our theme is inviting others to join the family. It's the theme of evangelism, which often is something we as Presbyterians often haven't talked about as much as we might have. But it's a great theme. How do we invite others to join our family of faith in Jesus Christ? And the scripture this morning is a blockbuster. It's the story of a man whose life was radically, dramatically changed by God, the Philippian jailer, from Acts 16, 16 to 34. Listen for the word of God. One day, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune-telling. While she followed Paul and us, she would cry out, These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And the spirit came out that very hour. (coughs) But when her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had been given a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, the jailer put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took Paul and Silas and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, pour through me, please, the gift of preaching, that these words might not simply be human words or human opinions, but By a miracle of your grace, these words might become your living word to us. And I pray they would touch every person who hears these words on a recording or at home on the live stream or here in the sanctuary so that we might take the next step on our journey of faith with you. To that end, bless and anoint this message. We pray in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
I love the story of the creative grandmother who was watching in horror as her daughter was trying to get her five-year-old grandson to take his cough medicine. The mother was so frustrated because the boy didn't want the medicine. And he kept telling his mother he didn't want to take it, kept clothing his mouth, and she insisted. Finally, the mother was so mad at the boy that she put the medicine on a spoon, grabbed him by the neck, opened his mouth, and was trying to force the spoon down the boy's throat with a cough medicine in it. And finally, the boy knocked the spoon out of his mother's arms. It fell on the floor. The medicine went everywhere. And the mother said, that's it. I've had it. I've had enough. I am done. You can be sick if you want. And she stomped out of the room. Well, it was at this point that the creative grandmother leaped into action. She not only cleaned up the mess of the spilled medicine, but she said to her daughter, honey, would you mind if I try to get the grandson to take the medicine? The mother said, mom, it's no use. He's stubborn. He's not going to take it. The mother said, well, would you mind if I try? The mother said, be my guest, mom. She stomps out of the, into the next room. Within 10 minutes, the mother heard squealing and giggling and joys of laughter and delight coming from the boy's room as the boy was taking his medicine and enjoying it. The mother wondered, what in the world could my mom have done to make the boy take the medicine? So she tiptoes into the room to see what had happened. As she tiptoed in there, she realized that her mother, the boy's grandmother, had mixed the medicine with the boy's favorite flavor of Kool-Aid and she had put it in a squirt gun. And you guessed it, she was firing that cool liquid into the boy's wide open mouth as the boy was squealing and laughing in delight. Thank God for grandmothers. But that grandmother knew this, that the problem wasn't the medicine. The problem was the method of delivery. Oh, how I wish the Church of Jesus Christ could be as understanding, as creative as that grandmother in understanding about evangelism. We have been given the greatest good news in all the world. We've been given the gospel medicine for the healing of the world. And yet, sometimes we try to shove it down people's throat and we leave a bad taste in their mouth and they don't want anything to do with the church or with evangelism and even with God. But here's the problem for the church. How do we express in words all that God has done for us? Sometimes the words defy description. For example, do you know what it feels like to be wet? Of course we do. We've all been wet today. We showered or we bathed or we washed our face. Maybe we had an early morning dip in the pool. But we know what it's like to be wet. But how would you describe what it's like to be wet to somebody who's never been wet? What would you say? What words would you use? Well, you could say I've been soaked or I've been saturated. But, but if you've never been wet, those words aren't really very meaningful. How do you describe what it feels like to be wet? You know the most effective way to do it? Is to splash people. To splash them and then they'll say, ah, so that's what it's like to be wet. Splashing people is the best way to do it. Jesus used the same method in his evangelism in, the, in the, his time of living 2,000 years ago. Jesus didn't ask his disciples to follow him with a theological treatise or a doctrinal assertions. He just said, follow me. And he chose a metaphor from their life. They were fishermen. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men and women. And then he splashed them with the love of God through healing and preaching and teaching and being with people. 
He went into people's homes and he went to marketplaces and he was splashing people. And the disciples caught it and they said, aha, so that's what it's like to follow God. Splashing people is the most effective form of helping people know what the, wor- what the meaning of the word is behind the word wet, what the meaning of the word grace or the word salvation is. Splash people with a little of it and they'll start to understand it. Your former pastor, Jeff O'Grady, has been a very good friend of mine for many years, and he was a young life leader, as many of you know, before he became a pastor, went to Princeton Seminary and went, came to SMCC. He was a young life leader, and he worked with high school kids in an evangelism ministry, and Jeff was very good at this. Jeff created a, an image in, in the young life world, was known as relational evangelism. In Young Life, they talk about winning the right to be heard. So they hang out with high school kids, and they spend time with high school kids, and they go to high school parking lots to basketball games and and football games. Well, this was right up Jeff O'Grady's alley, and so he was hanging out with kids, and when they would get sick or have a question or break up with somebody they were dating, the Young Life leaders were there for these kids, and they created such joy at these meetings, such amazing joy at the meetings and at the Young Life camps, that kids actually wanted to be there. They They came every Wednesday night or every Tuesday night, and when they would take a week at one of these camps, they didn't want to miss it because Jeff and these other Young Life leaders were splashing people. One of the things they did that was so funny, it's kind of corny, but some Young Life leader would stand in the middle of the kids, and they would meet 50 or 60 or 70 in somebody's house and have a Young Life meeting. And Jeff O'Grady would have them have one of these other leaders, unsuspecting, of course, take a quarter and put it on his forehead, and Jeff would put a funnel down inside the guy's jeans, and then he would say, take this quarter on your forehead and try to get the, the quarter by doing this down into the boy's jeans. And when the Young Life leader would start to do that, Jeff would take a glass of water and pour the water down the funnel, and the guy would get all wet, and everybody would laugh in hysteria. Can't you see how great he loved in this? I mean, he loved all this. He's a motorcycle rider, by and large. But he loved all this, and they created such joy and excitement in these Young Life little minutes and skits that everybody wanted to be a part of it. Nobody wanted to miss it. Jeff O'Grady splashed people with the love of God. This is precisely what happened to the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas splashed him with God's love in such an intoxicating way that the jailer said, I want what these people have. Now think about it. This occurred only in a several-day period. Paul and Silas came into the community. And when they came in, they saw a woman who was spouting off about them. These men, she was a fortune teller, these men are servants of the Most High God. They've come to offer a way of salvation. But this annoyed Paul because he realized this fortune teller, this woman was being exploited and used, and he didn't like it. More than that, he didn't like her introducing him to the town. He wanted to introduce himself to the town. So he cast out the demon from this woman. And when he did, he took away the men who had owned her, took away their means of making a living. And so the men were very upset with Paul and Silas, and they brought them before the magistrates, and they didn't say, these men have set this woman free, or they've liberated her. They didn't say that. They said, they're guilty of disorderly conduct, and they should be, they should be punished. And the magistrates agreed, and Paul and Silas had their clothing removed, and they were flogged. 
and they were beaten with rods, and they were scourged. And do you know to be flogged often meant that you were whipped? At the end of the whip was a piece of animal teeth, and it ripped your flesh. So when Paul and Silas were flogged, and when they were beaten with rods, it was bloody, and it hurt. What is so fascinating to me is that they didn't protest at the time. Later on, they told the Roman authorities that they were Roman citizens, and they shouldn't have been allowed to be flogged or scourged or beaten with rods, but they didn't mention it then. I wonder why. I believe that Paul and Silas had so grown in their maturity and their faith in God that they realized whatever happens to them is what God wants to have happen through them. Let that sink in for a minute. They realized this would be an opportunity to bear witness to God in the prison. So they took the beating and they took the punishment and they didn't protest. They allowed themselves to be put into chains, taken to prison. The Philippian jailer puts them in the innermost cell and he puts them in the stocks And in the stocks, their feet are separated so far apart that it hurt. So the Philippian jailer is watching all this. These guys take this beating and this flogging, and they're not protesting, and they're not fighting it. They had to corral other prisoners, but not Paul and Silas. There was something in their character that the Philippian jailer thought, I want to be like that. They were splashing him with the love of God. So they get into the prison, and at midnight... Instead of being mad and loathing in pain and writhing in pain or crying out that they want to get out of the prison, they're praying and singing hymns. And here's what's amazing. In the Scripture, it says the people were listening to them. You know, you'd expect the Bible to say, and the people were shouting, shut up, keep quiet, I got to get some sleep. But they weren't. They were listening to them. There was something about Paul and Silas that was contagious. And people loved seeing them. They were impressed with their prayer life, and they were impressed with the singing they were doing. And everybody wanted to be a part of it. They were splashing the Philippian jailer and those other prisoners. And then an earthquake occurred. And when the earthquake occurred, the walls of the prison fell down, the doors were open, and the chains were liberated. They were liberated from their chains. And they could have run away. The jailer woke up in the middle of the earthquake and realized all the prisoners probably were gone because the, the, walls, the doors were open, the walls had come down. They could have run away free. Their chains were broken. And he took his sword. He's ready to kill himself. And Paul and Silas yell out, don't harm yourself. And the jailer is thinking, who are these people? I mean, they don't protest when they're arrested and they're beaten and they're singing and praying in the middle of the night and people are listening to them. And... They could have gone scot-free. Nobody would have known the, bit, the difference. But they cared about my life. Who are these people? And the Philippian jailer is trembling, the Bible says. Wouldn't you be trembling if you met somebody like this? And the Philippian jailer knelt down before Paul and Silas and basically said, whatever it is that you have, I, I got to have it. I, I got to have it myself. And Paul and Silas said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And he says, what must I do to be saved? Well, just believe in Jesus Christ. You'll be saved and your whole household will be saved. Do you know the Philippian jailer took Paul and Silas to his home? 
He cleaned their wounds. Now imagine that. This is a jailer. He's an he's a official of the Roman government. He's a jailer, an official jailer. But he's washing the wounds because he realized there was an injustice when they were wounded and beaten and flogged and their flesh was ripped. He cleans their wounds. And then he and all of his household are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they serve them a wonderful meal. Don't you imagine the Philippian jailer's wife and he cooked a wonderful meal. And they, they're sitting and eating with Paul and Silas and all of them. And they're rejoicing that they came to believe in God. Now how do you describe what happened to the Philippian jailer? How do you describe it in words? The Philippian jailer had an experience of salvation. He got a new beginning. His slate is wiped clean. Use any analogy you want, but the Philippian jailer is realizing, I've got a whole new world available to me. A whole new world is happening to me. He put his weight down on God. He was a believer. And how do you describe it? What's hard to describe in words what happened to him. He got a whole new life in Jesus Christ. It's like the story of the two boys, the elementary school boys, who were playing on the railroad tracks one day. And one got his blue jeans caught in the railroad tie. The pant leg of his blue jeans caught in the tie. He couldn't get free. The other kid is trying to get him free, and they're playing around. They can't get free. And then the train whistle comes, and they're scared to death. And the sirens go off, and the red lights blink and flash. And the train starts coming down the track, and the one kid's trying to get the other kid who's caught off the track, but he can't do it. A football player is running home from football practice and doing his continuing his workout. He sees the plight of the boys, and he sees that they can't get out of the predicament themselves. So he runs over to them with all his force of a big high school senior, and he tackles these two kids, and they roll into the meadow, into the, into the grass on the other side of the railroad tracks as the train rushes by. One boy who was saved says, Whoopee! The other kid says, now, people in the church who come to know Jesus Christ and experience of salvation who say, whoopee, they're often Pentecostals and Southern Baptists. <laughs> people who say, whoosh, are often Presbyterians and Episcopalians. But everybody responds to the gift of salvation in their own way, in a way that's right for them. The problem in the church often is we get so concerned about the words that we use, and sometimes in using religious language, we inadvertently are like shoving that medicine down the kid's throat, and we need to devise creative ways to make the gospel real and authentic and joyful, as Paul and Silas did to the Philippian jailer. Can I be honest with you? On 4th of July Sunday, I, I love the United States of America. I, I love our country. Our son, Ryan, is a captain in the United States Navy. He went to the United States Naval Academy and graduated and has had a wonderful Navy career. He's still in the Navy, been in the Navy for over 20 years. But I'm concerned about our nation because somehow I think we've, we've forgotten God. You know, Abraham Lincoln, back in 1863, he made a proclamation and he declared a day of fasting, meditation, and prayer. He said in 1863, our nation has forgotten God we have forgotten the gracious hand that, that has given us all this bounty. We have been given more than any nation in the face of the earth. But somehow we think 
we earned it, or we deserve it, or we got it by our own merit, our own power, our own intellect, but actually we've forgotten God. Our nation's forgotten God. And Lincoln called the whole nation to prayer, whether they were Democrat or Republican or Independent or the Whig Party, whatever party they were. He called everybody to kneel and to honor God and to ask God to bless our land. And, you know, sometimes when Lincoln did this and before, it led to great awakenings in the United States of America, awakenings when America turned back to God. I think this is a time, a moment in time, after COVID, when there could be another great awakening in the United States of America. We need God. We don't always know we need God. We know we need people. I think COVID taught us that we get isolated and we get lonely and we need other people. It's good to be back with people. But I think people might even be coming to the realization, you know, we need God. And maybe we need to declare a declaration of dependence on God. Maybe we've gotten a little too independent, thinking that we can do it. We're a little too self-sufficient. But we need God. Do you remember the story of Alexis de Tocqueville back in 1831? He was a French statesman and philosopher. De Tocqueville was one of the most respected people in the world. And that's a big statement. But he was certainly one of the most respected people in France. He had great character and great intellect. And they commissioned him to go from France to the United States of America and find the greatness of America. And de Tocqueville said, I sought the greatness of America in the harbors of America, the rivers, the fields, and the forests, but I didn't find it there. I sought the greatness of America in the vast commerce and the public square, I sought the greatness of America in your public education system and your system of higher learning, but I didn't find it there either. I sought the greatness of America in your Democratic Congress, but I didn't find it there either. I sought the greatness of America in your Constitution, but I didn't even find it there. It was not until I went into the Church of Jesus Christ and found that your pulpits were flaming with the righteousness of God and the Word of God that I found the greatness of America. America is great because of God. America is great because the people are good. And if we ever fail to be good, we will cease to be great. I wonder if that's a prophetic word for us today. America needs God. But so often, we forget the hand that gave us all this. And we need people like us who can splash people with the love of God and remind people, hey, we didn't get all this at our own power to splash people, to remember we need to turn to God. And our lives, our authentic lives, can be very effective. I just close with this thought. Years ago, I had the privilege and honor of preaching at Chautauqua. Maybe you've heard of Chautauqua. It's a great institution up on Lake Erie in New York State, almost between New York and Pennsylvania, near Niagara Falls. It's gorgeous country. And at Chautauqua, they have symphony orchestras, and they have ballets and opera, and they have singing and dancing. And, and I was the preacher who preached Sunday morning and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And I took Suzanne and our son, Toby, who was single at that time, with me. And they came to hear me preach in the morning. And then the afternoon, Toby and I would play golf. And then Suzanne would go to craft shows and knitting stores. And in the evening, we'd meet up for dinner. But then I had to look over my sermon because I had to preach another sermon every day. So I had to look over that sermon in the evening. So the night were a little quiet for Toby, and he didn't know what to do, so he went down into the living room of the home we were staying, and people were playing board games, and he found a mom uh, and his, her two sons who were playing board games, and 
um, you know, Toby was looking, frankly, for a little female companionship uh, at Chautauqua. And there were some single women there, but unfortunately, few of them were under 85. So he, the nights were slow for Toby, so he didn't have much going on. So he plays Scrabble and board games with his family, this mom and these two little boys. And he's having a good time playing with them. They had ice cream and played Scrabble and board games and cards. And Toby said, the mom said, Toby, why are you here? He said, well, I'm, my dad's the preacher for the week, and I come here with my dad, and we, we hear him preach in the morning, and then we play golf in the afternoon, and then my mom and dad and I have dinner. And she said, wow, that's, that's great. He said, well, you know, I go to church every morning to hear my dad preach. Why don't you come with me and hear my dad some morning? And the woman said, no, I'm not religious. I don't believe in God. And Toby said, oh, my dad's not religious either. I think he meant that as a compliment. But anyway, uh, he said, my dad's not religious either. And so he's urging the woman to come. She said, no, no, I don't believe in God. I'm not religious, so I'm not coming. So she didn't come. But the final morning I was preaching at Chautauqua, Friday morning, I look out of the congregation, and there's Toby sitting with the woman and her two sons. And after the sermon, after the worship service, the woman comes down to greet me, and she said, I've got to tell you, I don't believe in God. I'm not here because of God. I'm not here because of you. I'm here because of your son. You know, our family is in crisis. We're going through a divorce. My husband and I are in the process of a divorce. He was to come with me this week, but he didn't come. So I'm here with the two kids alone. But my marriage is probably going to end, and it's very sad to me and very sad to our sons, but it's probably going to be over. But I was looking for a little help from my kids during this week at Chautauqua, and your son appeared out of nowhere, and he has been such a positive male role model for our sons that when I met your son and got to know him, I thought to myself, I want to get to know that kid's father and mother. I'm really glad I met you, Dr. Toole. Thank you for raising such a great son. Anyway, she goes off with her two kids. And Toby's left standing with me, and he puts his arm around me, and he says, you know, Dad, there's a sermon in there somewhere. And so there is. May you and I so live our lives that when people see us and get to know us and what we're made of, that they will want to get to know our Father and Mother God. That's evangelism. Amen.